the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Hello, everyone. Lindsay, I'm pretty excited today. All our movies are always like pre-2000, but now that we hit 2021, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There's movies that are now 20 (laughs) years old. That's considered old enough for us to talk about a movie. And so uh, I'm excited that we're going to be talking about the 20th anniversary of the fantastic film Ghost World. I was so happy when you said you wanted to do this one. I've loved this movie since the moment it came out. It felt like it hit exactly who I was or my generation right at that very time. Like I I graduated high school the same year. I felt like I knew those girls. I couldn't be happier to be talking about Ghost World and diving into everything about this film. Yeah, and this this one I, I saw when it first came out in... Also, myself, an integral part of my life, like I connected this movie because I had just just got out of college and I was in my first year of kind of like, you know, I moved to another city and was trying to, you know, struggling, trying to pay the bills and like, quote unquote, out in the real world. And it was pretty miserable yeah. my first year out of college. <laughs> and, you know, I really connected with this movie and that idea of friends separate. Like I had just had all these friends that I made and in college and everybody kind of went their own way and people form those opinions of like, no, I got to go grow up or no, I'm not, I'm not growing up yet. I'm still going to have fun and stretch it out as long as I can. And it seems actually more applicable now in today's age, you can be in your thirties and still not growing up. And it's not as considered such a bad social stigma as it was, you know, in early 2000. I mean, it was still, that era of you get out of college and you got to get a job or you got to do something. Otherwise you're a loser, you know? Yeah. And I think ghost world hit on that exact notion. You know, we were still feeling that pull or that drive to what am I going to do with my life now after college, after high school. And this was at a time when social media wasn't a thing. Cell phones existed, but they weren't like a big thing. This was a transitional time for teenagers, for just American culture for the world um, at the time, a lot of things were changing right at that millennium, right? And Ghost World hit on that in-between generation that we're calling Gen X and didn't have another name at the time, which soon became millennial. It's that middle section, that lost generation. And that is what Ghost World is. And I, I it hits on it so well in this film, which is also somewhat ironic because the story was written quite a few years before the movie came out. This movie has 90s vibes to it. So it it's definitely yeah. feels yeah. like the material came out of the 90s, even some of the fashion and, and the music and the look of things. This movie was adapted from a graphic novel. We'll get into that in our discussions, but I was not familiar with it. Like when this movie came out, it was totally foreign to me. I just like saw the title Ghost World. The trailer looked interesting. I loved Steve Buscemi at the time. After reading reviews and stuff like, oh, this is adapted from a graphic novel. And 
I had not, I was not a person that grew up on comic books. I probably have said this before and certainly had not read any graphic novels. So um, I was able to, after all these years, finally, I read the graphic novel Ghost World uh, <laughs> just this week for this episode. So we'll, we'll talk about the differences a little bit between the graphic novel and the, the movie in this discussion. And like you, I saw the movie before I ever read the graphic novel, and I stole someone's copy many, many years ago. I read it, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, probably. It was shortly after the film when I read it, and I guess karmically, you know, my copy that I stole from someone has disappeared over the years. How punk of you, Lindsay. (laughs) Right? It was so something that Enid would do. Gosh. So, Justin, I just want to publicly thank you for getting me a copy to permanently have in my life. You're welcome. Personally delivered to your door in the middle of a pandemic. That's how much I love you. (laughs) And I wasn't even home. I mean, wow. So uh, what else do we have on the uh, docket here for discussions, Lindsay? Oh, gosh. So we will get into the differences between the graphic novel and the film. We won't go you know, super in depth because that could be a whole episode on its own, but we'll tell you a lot of the main differences go into the background on how Terry Zweigoff, the director and Dan Klaus, who's the creator originator of ghost world, how they came together, um, how this movie was formatted from a comic to a movie and, uh, kind of a lot to do with the visual stylings, everything that, that transferred over and was omitted from the film. And after our discussions, we'll get into our picks of the week. What was your pick this week, Lindsay? Well, I went with a movie from 1986 that co-stars a very cute little early role by Steve Buscemi. And the movie's called Parting Glances. And what about you? What's your pick this time? I went with 2002's American Splendor because I wanted to do a movie that also was, it's uh, more of like a biopic of of a guy who much like Daniel Klaus who made ghost world, he made a comic that dealt with sort of real life things. that wasn't so much about superheroes and the kind of comic books that were more geared toward kids. His comics and ideals were geared more toward adults and real life problems, really fantastic movie and a great performance by Paul Giamatti. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about those in a bit here. And then after that, always we'll get into our Murray moments, But Lindsay, before we go into our first clip from Ghost World, can you give us a quick lowdown, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Well, you know I'd love to. For this story, we follow Enid and Rebecca, best friends fresh off of graduating high school, ripe with wit and dryly sarcastic observations about the perceived lower-functioning, sick, sad, devolving world around them and the life choices set before them. As Rebecca tries to push them both into adulthood, Enid develops a friendship with a gentleman similar in spirit and more than twice her age, then devotes her time to this new fixation of hers. Will these reactionary recent grads withstand the changes before them? Well, the answer's not so cut and dry, but this journey through Ghost World is filled with characters and relationships familiar to mostly anyone who's experienced the complexities of adolescence. As always, as every episode, there's a lot going on in this movie. That's what I always say. There really is. We'll uh, go to a clip from Ghost World and we'll come back. We'll talk about it. Do you have any other old records besides these? Seymour does. Who does? Oh, uh, him. Seymour. He's, uh, he's the man with the records. Um, Do you have any old Indian records? 
Indian records? Uh, yeah, you know, like old Indian 1960s rock and roll music. I may have one Hindu 78 in my collection from the 20s, but it's, uh, it's not really for sale. I, I, I don't really collect foreign. Those are all 78s. You, you play 78s? Oh, maybe not 78s, but I can play regular records. Well, there's, there's, some, uh, there's some good stuff in here. You, you like old music? Yeah, it's good. Well, there's some choice LPs in here that uh, reissue some really great old blues stuff. Hmm. How about this one? Is it any good? Nah, that one's not so great. Excuse me. This is the one I'd recommend. This track alone by Memphis Mini is worth about $500 if you own the original 78. I know the guy who owns the original and lent it for use on this reissue. Wow. How much is it? $1.75. If you don't like it, you can, uh, you can bring it back for a refund. We're here every Saturday. I'm sure it's okay. Enjoy. It was so cute how he had his own little bags. I thought it was going to start crying. Yeah, he should totally just kill himself. Oh, here's one. Oh, but you have to share with a non-smoking feminist and her two cats? I don't know. I kind of like him. He's the exact opposite of everything I really hate. In a way, he's such a clueless dork. He's almost kind of cool. That guy has many things, but he's definitely not cool. So we could do an individual podcast just on Terry Zweigoff and Daniel Klaus. We only have one episode here that's on Ghost World, so I don't want to dig too far back into the backstory, but the formation of Ghost World began by two very eccentric and interesting artists who met up. Uh, Terry Zweigoff, for years, had been a documentary filmmaker. He was very good friends with the comic book artist Robert Crumb, and... For many, many, many years, uh, Terry Zweigoff documented Crumb and eventually uh, released the 1995 documentary hit Crumb that was kind of a huge smash sensation for Terry Zweigoff. Up until that point, he had done um, shorter documentaries. And uh, Daniel Klaus, who wrote Ghost World and adapted the screenplay, uh, he had been an illustrator and a cartoon artist and started writing graphic novels, had a lot of interest, similar interest with Terry Zweigoff. And when they met, they hit it off right away in coming up with this idea of doing a movie uh, adaptation of Daniel Klaus' graphic novel, Ghost World. Uh, Terry Zweigoff at the time had, again, only done documentary films. He hadn't done a narrative, so it was sort of him trying to, first off, convince a studio that he could be a first-time director on a narrative film and also, you know, adapt something like a comic book or a graphic novel. So even in the beginning, the way this movie came together just seemed kind of unlikely. Two very determined artists uh, working together was the perfect combination to create a movie that's so unique like Ghost World. And as the story goes, Terry Zweigoff contacted Daniel Klaus at the behest, actually, of his wife that was really pushing him to start the next project and get something going. And she was the one that brought up 
Ghost World and said, why don't you take a look at this? There was already a connection there, you know, with Robert Crumb and knowing that Daniel Klaus had an appreciation for Robert Crumb. Zweigoff had done a documentary on him. So there was this connection that they knew that probably could be formed there. So Zweigoff calls up Klaus. They don't know each other, but he says, I'm working on this documentary. Um, it's going to be coming out. I'd love to show it to you. And brings it over to Klaus. And I think he said that he he left it with him and he came back a little bit later and he had watched it. And unbeknownst to Klaus, this thing was already, you know, scheduled to go out as is. And Klaus had some ideas on what he would want to see more of in the documentary. And so Zweigoff was like, cool, I love that you have input and I wish I could add that in, but it's already been done and sealed deal. But how would you feel about maybe working on something something else, maybe adapting one of your graphic novels like Ghost World into a film? So it came up just very naturally. And it's not too surprising that the two would hit it off and become friends. And the process in writing just, they said, came up very organically. Klaus, however, you know, hadn't done something like this before. So he started transcribing the graphic novel as is into into a screenplay. But as he was doing that, realized that there wasn't really a through line to the ghost world story. And if you've read the graphic novel, it is very much just a day in the life or days in the lives of these two girls, Enid and Rebecca. There's not necessarily one driving story other than what these girls are experiencing in their lives at that certain point in time, other than what they're doing, you know, post high school graduation. So once Klaus figured out that he couldn't just take exactly the graphic novel and adapt it into a screenplay, he and Zweigoff started collaborating on how they were going to work this out. Man, from the sound of it, it seems like they were spitballing some of the time. It would be that they would meet twice a week and they would both write elements of the story and see where it would fit in. And then they would give each other notes and see what they could fit in together. And with these two writing bits of the story and letting each other see it, it became very apparent that Klaus was a little bit more skilled at writing dialogue for Rebecca and Enid. Now, I don't know if they were exaggerating or not, but the whole process of developing this film was pretty lengthy. Yeah, I want to say from start to finish, it was like around five and a half years. Terry Zweigoff started the process of working on Ghost World, I think around 1996, and the movie was released in 2001. So spent a great deal of his life trying to bring this movie to the big screen. Just crazy, just adapting something, writing, filming, editing, everything just took so many years in order for in order for this to get to be what what we see now. So when they were pitching this film, they took it to a studio and the studio just saw, oh, it's a story about two teenage girls. Cool. So we can we can market this. This is something that we can, you know, movies with teenagers are big right now. That was right at the latter end of the slasher boom like the mainstream slasher boom and the teenage retelling of Shakespearean stories so they just saw two teenage girls great we can put some marketing behind this we can probably have a cool pop soundtrack that'll really get the kids interested now Zweigoff and Klaus saw this one coming and they were totally scared by it and did not want that for this movie because if you know anything about the graphic novel 
it's not going to have something like a real pop soundtrack. It's not going to have anything that's happy-go-lucky, even though there is a lot of comedy, but it's all very cynical. So they tried to head the studio off at the pass, and I kind of can't believe that they did this, but they've said it multiple times that they elevated a very minor character in the graphic novel known as Bob Skeets and turned him into what we know as Seymour in the movie version of Ghost World. They said that Seymour is one of the main characters. Music's very important to him and basically similar to Terry's Wygoff, which he is basically Terry's Wygoff, you know, doesn't listen to anything beyond 1937 and it's all jazz. So it was very targeted and saying, so if there's one thing that we can do to control what the studio is going to do, we're at least going to control that. And then they just kind of went with it. It seems crazy to me. Your script's not done and you just make an executive decision to elevate this character that you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but we're going to do something. I also just think it's crazy that the uh, way to persuade the studio from <laughs> using a very modern pop soundtrack is say, yeah, we're going to do wall to wall 1930s like <laughs> Um, obscure old blues music. <laughs> Perfect. That's going to be a major selling point for the kids of today. But the uh, well, also too, what's weird about it is that it's not really reflective of the characters. I mean, the two teenage girls are hip, and they bring up bands like Sonic Youth, and you know, I mean, it's it's of yeah. the the time period. But um, I just can see these, you know, Daniel Klaus and Terry Zweigoff like talking to a studio saying. Um, no, we can't use a pop soundtrack because we have this main character and he listens to old blues songs. <laughs> and, we're just like, and that'll be that'll bookend the film. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> there's one thing that's going to happen, and we are yeah. not going to have that. That is extremely important. Um, I mean, it's awesome. It is but... awesome, and and the, you know the use of blues music. Uh, one particular song does play a pivotal role in the movie in uniting the characters of Enid and Seymour. But it's just that's a funny pitch. But I mean, neither one of these guys had. <laughs> had dealt with the studio before. They were so green going into this. One of the studio execs asked Zweigoff, what are you going to do if you're confronted with a problem? Do you think you're going to be able to pull this off? And Zweigoff's response was, I don't know, probably, maybe. And that was not what a studio ever wants to hear. You know, we were still coming out of the the gusto of the independent wave, the 90s independent mm-hmm. wave. So there, yeah. were, there was still a time in Hollywood left before Iron Man came out where they were still spending, you know, seven to 15 million dollars on movies like Mulholland Drive. And there was still taking a chance on a movie like this, like a, a decent sized budget with a, a relatively unknown cast, but taking a chance on these two artists, Terry Zwagoff and Daniel Klaus, who re- really, I think, made, uh, you know, the script to Ghost World is is really, really solid. Seemingly not a lot going on, but it does have a lot to say. I think it's a movie that uh, is is really smart and sophisticated and is also very bold, especially watching the movie now. Um, it is a little squeamish, this idea of like a 45-year-old guy and this 18-year-old girl. I'm not, de- I'm not defending the decision to, to, to make this relationship in the movie happen, but, uh, you know, Lindsay, we talked about this off the mic, that the Seymour character is definitely not focusing on her as a sexual object. And if anything, you know, she's kind of like using him and starts off, he's like a joke to her. Um, and then they slowly develop this friendship that then turns into something else for a brief, brief moment in the movie. But that brief, brief moment is still 
still happens. You know, it makes you squirm. You're like, oh, man, they're really going there with this. And uh, I don't know. I don't know that that could that could happen today. I don't know that anybody would really want to put that in the script today, but I think it's pulled off with a level of taste that it's it's doable. But that aside, Daniel Klaus and, and Terry Zweigoff really, I think, found a good balance between the Seymour character who Terry Zweigoff has described as, that's me, you know, this obsessive record collector who is annoyed at most of the people in society and Daniel Klaus took over the characters of of Enid and Rebecca, and they worked together in melding their worlds in the script. And I think it's kind of great because when you watch this movie, whether you know a young person or or an older person, it's it's one of those few movies I think that is identifiable to young and old because the young people aren't made to look like idiots and the old people aren't made to look like idiots. It's not like a movie that's like geared toward old people or specifically young people. There's again, that good dichotomy so that it's, it's kind of broad in a way, even though it's a, an offbeat story. um, I think it's like highly relatable to people of all ages. I couldn't agree more with that. I do want to go back to the Enid and Seymour thing real quickly and say that, it is such a minor thing that happens in the story. And because Seymour's not predatory and all of the times that I've seen this movie, I know that that's cringeworthy, you know, to have an 18 year old and a 45 year old. It doesn't bother me until Seymour actually entertains the idea that, Oh, we can be together. But what's beautiful about that is we see what would really happen in a relationship. He doesn't view her as a child because one, she doesn't act like it. But afterwards, after they sleep together, you really see that Enid is still very much a teenager and she behaves that way, you know, and all of these aspects of what being a teenager is like are worked all throughout the script. The idea of a teenager that's trying to be an adult, but just isn't there trying to force adulthood, but doesn't actually want to change with it, you know, kind of wants everything to stay the same once who they are to kind of stay the same. And along with that, we have this whole idea of teenage rebellion. I mean, this movie is a diary of a teenager's mind. Wouldn't you say, Justin? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and definitely that outsider perspective, not just wanting to go with the flow of things, you know, not just saying, well, that's how people are. Like, you know, that idea of like kind of taking a stand and saying, you know, either I'm going to talk about how annoying, you know, people can be and how like, why are these rules this way? And like, why are we functioning this way as a society? Or that idea of like removing yourself from all that and basically becoming a hermit in your apartment and like doing your job. But then you, you basically build your own utopia that in a way makes you miserable, like the Seymour character, but you've removed yourself from society. And it's sad how every year I get older, I relate more and more to the Seymour character and (laughs) him, him driving and listening to the radio announcer, like talking so loud and him complaining about it. It's like every time I'm on the rate in the morning when I'm driving to work and I, you know, decide to flip on anything other than NPR. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's like someone's jabbing, you know, pencils into my ears (laughs) there's a lot of me that also identifies with Seymour but with Rebecca and Enid they call back to who I was as a kid and the interesting dynamic 
of Ghost World is the crossover of being a teenager and an adult and going along with the idea of this being a, a teen story, adult story, this idea of existential uncertainty is has always been a through line in any one character's story where they have to make a choice in life. But the way Ghost World deals with so many things, though, in this movie just makes the pain of adolescence and the changing of, of friendships and even critiquing the world around you. All of these things are a hyper awareness of yourself and what makes you insecure and also being highly judgmental of everything around you. Ghost World just creates this very, very rich universe of all of these characters on somewhat of the same plane interacting together, even though they are, some of them, you know, 30 years apart in age. And also, too, like what I love about the script and these characters are that they are very self-aware. I mean, it's a different kind of movie because usually you open a movie and the character is not so self-aware of themselves or their surroundings. We're given that information in the opening credits. I think I've used this example before. I was just watching a show the other day that was brand new and they used the same trope where the guy spills coffee on his shirt and he's running late for work and you know everybody <laughs> at work knows he's late and they're like, oh, he, he won't be here for another 10 minutes. And this kind of whole cycle, whereas... Ghost World opens and you see the assembly like you would in another movie, but then they're like already judging it and commenting on it and (laughs) so self-aware of how like we're done with high school. I don't care about this. They're commenting on another student. And it's just a different way to approach characters in the movie where we don't go past this like sort of facade of learning about the characters. You're just kind of smacked in the face like within the first five minutes of like, oh, okay, these are real characters and they're talking about real stuff and they have real ideas and real thoughts. And this movie has a great character arc for both these characters, but I think that it's designed in the way that feels much more fresh and and more unique. We'll talk about the ending of this movie in discussion too, but the movie's not afraid to leave things a little ambiguous because they're not treating the audience like they're stupid and kind of come up with their own ideas of like, okay, well, this is naturally how these characters would end up or if they, they're going their separate ways, like what will become of these characters, and especially as, as being older, because, you know, you, you've seen people grow up, you know, and you see that big difference of someone between the ages of like 18 to 28, that 10 years finding out who they are. And Yeah, this movie just is a really, uh, I don't even like to call it coming of age because it almost seems like in the beginning of the movie, they're already, they've already have (laughs) come into their age. And now we're like given almost like the stage after that, where like another movie would uh, end Ghost World's already like beginning at the end of a regular coming of age movie. Yeah, but they also retain these teenage qualities like obsessiveness, especially within Eden. And, you know, self-doubt and this weird sense of self-absorption, too, that just happens inherently during that time. Ghost World does this thing that I I know I've talked about in, in episodes before where, you know, we grow as people after high school, but sometimes there are just some things that don't really change about our personality that you can see things about the 18 year old self that you once were in your 45 year old self. And I'm not saying that we necessarily see that here in, in ghost world, maybe a little bit of things where 
maybe Seymour acts a little bit naive, like a teenager, and not really thinking things through. There's a lot of flip-flopping, I think, in this, and where we see that sometimes we are kind of the same person we were when we were at a young age as when we are older. And the blending of those two worlds, I think, works really well here. The Rebecca and Enid character are written so sharply and they're so biting that I think the first time I watched this movie, though I did like it, it was off-putting because I was thinking, like, how am I supposed to feel any sympathy for these characters? They're just, like, ripping on everything and everybody. (laughs) And at first I was like, man, you know, people don't talk like that in, in real life. But... The more I watch the movie and the more times I've seen it, it becomes less and less jarring to hear them analyze things and judge things so harshly. I think in the comics, you know, we'll talk about that later, you know, they are a little more mean-spirited than they are in the movie. All these little things that they're mean, but it's like, you're like, no, that that tracks for like an 18-year-old. You know, they're not thinking of anybody's feelings other than their own. But they do win me over in the end. And, and also, too, when you see their them start to split, their friendships start to, to crack um, and kind of see where they're dealing with their lives changing and, and dealing with, okay, you know, not, not everybody's friends for 40 years. You know what I mean? Like we grow apart as people. I mean, even when you're older, you know, you'll, you'll be best friends with somebody and, you know, you drift apart. Someone moves, someone has different interests, you know, you, they get a new job, whatever. And this movie, I think, is shows how those friendships can split. And I think it's as much of a movie about friendship as it is about growing up and trying to figure out where your placement is in in this world. And like you said, even though the humor can be biting, you know, one person's mean-spirited humor can be another person's brutal honesty. There are some moments in this movie when you're like, damn, that was really harsh. But then the other half of you thinks, but they're not wrong, too. There's that element, and then there's also this element of melancholy, just sadness. And that goes along with the friendship aspect of things changing, this sense of loss, um, even hurting someone's feelings, like what happens with Seymour. And these are all many elements that were taken directly out of Klaus's graphic novel um, and, and put into the film. But that's not to say that everything from Ghost World, the graphic novel, is included in the film. There are plenty of things that were taken out or just kind of rearranged. To me, when I was rereading this, I kind of made little marks on the edge of of every page. You know, was any of this included in the film? Was some of it? Was all of it? And I'll tell you, it was kind of pointless because it, it was so well blended together that I, I could go page by page and say this was, this wasn't, this kind of was. It's so that intertwined both of the two. They complement each other really well. The biggest thing that I noticed, the, the difference between the comic and the movie, was that in the comic book, it's it's Enid who has this opportunity to go away to college and she's taking you know this test to get in and she's using these big words and that's constantly annoying Rebecca and Rebecca's feeling like she's starting to feel dumb around Enid and is annoyed that Enid's going to take this test and she's making a big deal about going to college. And they sort of switch those characters in the movie and Rebecca's the one that has more ambition and Enid is the one that kind of wants to keep living out her childhood fantasies and not, you know, facing, you know, doing something right away after high school. And then, of course, the Seymour character um, wasn't even really a part of the comic. I mean, he was not only a separate character, but 
that separate character was in the comic for such a tiny little portion and good it was a good way to give the the movie more flow i can see why they put that in there and then also especially because like we said terry zweigoff making the seymour character uh sort of a, a mirror of himself he was able to put you know more of his personal touch into the movie versus just straight adapting somebody else's work but making it more of his movie as well and his style one of the biggest things that stuck out to me as far as differences go uh, but the blending of the two worlds of the graphic novel and the film are when Edith and Seymour sleep together in the film. Obviously, if Seymour is not a significant character in the graphic novel, that's not going to happen there. But what does happen is Enid and Josh sleep together. And Josh is much more of a character in the graphic novel than he is in the film, though, you know, he is a substantial character in the film. He is the guy that Enid and Rebecca both have this competing crush on. And there's a lot of weird kind of unspoken jealousy a little bit. He likes you. No, he likes you. That type of thing. That's not really played up too much in the film. But I did think it was really interesting how they chose to flip flop that storyline of what happens from the graphic novel to the film. I, I do like the character of Josh in, in both the comic and the movie. We'll talk about cast here when we come back from the next clip. But Brad Renfro really gave a better interpretation of that character because he's a little bit of a blank slate in the comic book. You don't really get where he's coming from too much until later, like toward the very end. Man, I had the same feeling that I like Brad Renfro as Josh better than him in the graphic novel. And there, like we said, there are plenty of things that didn't exist in the graphic novel than exist in the movie, like Roberta Allsworth, the art teacher, the quirky art teacher. She doesn't exist in the graphic novel. Neither does the loiterer, the guy with the nunchucks and the mullet and really bad sunburn. He doesn't exist in the graphic novel either, but there are plenty of characters that have been in the graphic novel that aren't in the movie and plenty that go back and forth like the satanists are still there weird al but there are so many um that go back and forth kind of at the end of the day you feel like it was like it's all just kind of the same in yeah. some ways especially if you if you read the graphic novel and watch the movie you kind of feel like wait was that in the movie i kind of feel like it was when I think that there's enough there that if you came to the movie after you had read the graphic novel, I, I think that they did a transfer of like as, as best as you possibly could of transferring the characters to screen and especially the look of the characters. I mean, it's kind of crazy when I, you know, I was reading it. I was thinking like it's nuts to me that they did not have these actors the look of in them. Mind. Yeah, mind. Like they really match up to the style and look of, of how they are designed in the in the in the in the graphic novel that's for everybody even down to the comedian that they have on tv in one tiny scene that's in the graphic novel in the movie even that guy yeah. looks exactly like how he does in the novel well we'll uh we'll stop there we'll come back we'll talk about the characters in the cast um of this movie and we'll also talk about that ambiguous ending that uh was also a little bit different um than it was in the novel and uh, we'll talk about the you know release and reception of this movie. All right, sounds good. Show, 
that asshole's voice is so hateful. No wonder I never listen to the radio. Relax, just, just, it's so shrill and loud and piercing. I mean, it's like I feel like I'm being jabbed in the face. KTO coming at you on this beautiful evening. Thank you. Um, why'd you bring the record? Brought it so he can autograph it. He's gonna be amazed to see it. It's one of only two known copies. I can't believe they have him as the opening act and not the headliner. It's, it's, what an insult. You know, there's gonna be lots of girls for you to pick from at this bar. I'm not holding my breath in that department. What, are we in slow motion here? Come on, what are you, hypnotized? Have some more kids, why don't you? Jesus Christ, move it! Seymour! So Ghost World is so perfectly cast, but this is a movie that I think could easily have been miscast uh, generally when movies are a little bit offbeat or they have a particular tonality to the characters that can kind of really be hard to gauge till you actually see the actor saying the lines off the page, like really bringing that characterization to the screen. And so this is one of those movies where, yeah, you could have just cast the wrong person by accident just because it's such offbeat characters and then end up someone like overplaying it or underplaying it. The lead character went to Thor Birch, the Enid character, and we talked earlier about the pre-production this movie took so long that when they first were thinking about actors, Thor Birch was like 12 years old, but the road, you know, went much longer. Uh, Thor Birch had you know, been in more movies and became a little bit older where she would, you know, fit the same age as the lead character. And it was a role that she really wanted. She read the script and was like, I totally relate to this character. But at the time, the studio and the director, writer were leaning toward Christina Ricci, who, especially at that time period, is like the perfect Enid. But Maybe it would have been too on the nose. Like Christina Ricci herself said, I've done this character. Like I've, I've played yeah. these parts. Like, you know, yeah. I, I just don't want to do that anymore. And so Thor Birch was still gunning for the role. And Terry Zweigoff said, you know, I, I just don't see you as uh, Enid. You know, I see you as Rebecca. Like, can I offer you the part of Rebecca? I could see you playing that. And she said, no, like, I, I, I can't do Rebecca. Like, you know, Enid speaks to me. So... Thora Birch, like, cut her hair short, you know, dyed it black and came in with the glasses looking like the Enid character and, and really sold herself and nailed the part, got the part. And American Beauty had come out just a few years prior, and that was a huge, huge hit. It's kind of wild, this the two years difference between those two movies. I mean, the Enid character is, is such, like, a controlled, central character, like, a, just a really great performance. And... Pairing well with uh, Scarlett Johansson, who has had a humongous career, um, this being like one of her first like more grown up roles. And they really play well off each other. You know, they said they hadn't they knew of each other, but they kind of hung out to get the vibe of, you know, need to appear on screen as if they've been friends since they were four years old. I, I love the vibe that they give off. I love the the give and take that they have when they're on screen. You know, you can see like the friendship cracking a little bit. Like they aren't always uh, agreeing with each other on certain things. And whereas the Enid character is like so into like changing her style and changing her appearance and is like in the punk and like, I'm going to do this. Um, Rebecca's more reserved and more, you know, kind of dresses similar to the whole movie and 
doesn't always understand where Enid's coming from. Whereas when they were younger, you know, they were just always on the same page. And I don't know, it's it's very nicely layered throughout the movie, like where we see their their past sort of separating. And for two characters like this, you really have to believe that they are bonded, that they can finish each other's sentences. So the two actors did spend a lot of pre-production time hanging out and luckily didn't end up hating each other, which at that age, for two actors who are up and coming, that's something that would be of a concern, I would imagine, to a director or anyone involved with a production. But it didn't happen with these guys. And I'm not sure if it was Thora Birch or Scarlett Johansson who said, watching the friendship dynamic between Daniel Klaus and Terry's Wygoff, watching how they played off of each other, how that became kind of like the energy that they were feeding off of. And not that they were emulating it by any means, but that it was something that influenced them in a lot of ways and got them to get on really well with each other. And having two characters like Rebecca and Enid, man, there were a few girls in high school that I had really close friendships with. And I'm really glad Scarlett Johansson said this because I thought it was always me projecting my gayness on these characters. But Scarlett Johansson said that there is some sort of romantic relationship between them, even though there's no romance whatsoever. There's there's nothing gay, no attraction, but it's that close. It's that intimate of a friendship. And to be able to watch two people that hadn't really known each other before this, if anything, Scarlett Johansson had known Thor Birch and had admired her work well before, you know, she was established in the game. Thora Birch had been around forever. And I mean, Scarlett Johansson had been too, but Thora Birch had been established for a little bit longer. So to be able to believe that these two women can show up and have some pre-production time to get to know each other and become friends to create two characters who are conjoined at the hip, really, um, is really an impressive feat. And Scarlett Johansson, man, learning that she blindly sent in an audition tape for this. It's not like she was asked to come in for anything or responded to an audition. She got the script at 14 and she started shooting at age 15. That's just nuts to me. And she is wonderful in this role. I do think that the way that she plays Rebecca is different than the graphic novel. But like we said before in discussion one, the characters do change in some ways. Um, I mean, a lot of the themes and everything are the same throughout the entire story, but the characters of Enid and Rebecca do kind of morph a little bit um, into the movie. Such a great duo. And I think Terry Zweigoff was really taken with Johansson's monotonous look on life, like her uh, just kind of really chill vibe. Said that she was, if anything, was more adult acting than he and Klaus. And the character that uh, Terry Zwagoff was most nervous about casting because he wanted a particular actor so bad because, again, this is him writing a version of himself into the script and trying to cast someone that sort of emulates himself. He desperately wanted Steve Buscemi for the part. Zwagoff said to Steve Buscemi, I'll actually kill myself if you don't star in this movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you've read interviews with Terry Zweigoff, I mean, there was a period in his life where he said he slept with a loaded gun next to his pillow, always trying to work up the nerve to kill himself because he was so broke and Jesus. desperately working on documentary films in the 
early 90s, which is pretty raw and honest. <laughs> Good God. Yeah, it is raw and honest. That's one one way to say it. Terry Swigoff is still with us. Steve Buscemi um, agreed to do the movie. Uh, I don't know if the threats of suicide worked or not, but um, he was perfectly cast as Seymour. And Steve Buscemi, I think this is a role that was like really difficult for him. He said he got so uncomfortable doing this that he just wanted to like just tear off the clothes and like take a shower whenever they were done shooting for the day. I don't think he was particularly comfortable with the idea of him being an older guy with a younger woman, but you know, stay dedicated to the script and plays this character with such. Just such intensity really captures people on the edge, you know, people who haven't really been out, people who (laughs) are closed off. And I think he plays up a lot of the humor in this and a lot of his lines, like when he shows Enid his apartment for the first time in his room where he keeps all his record collection. And he's got all this like antique stuff from the 20s and 30s. And she's like, oh, man, I would I would kill for stuff like this. And he's like, please kill me. You know, just this very someone who's like, yeah, you know, someone who's just like very bitter, someone who's just like knows who they are, knows they're not changing. But then we do see like everybody, you know, has like an arc in this movie. Um, We do see his character, you know, develop a relationship with a woman his own age. And yeah, he, he, he just really plays this as a very bitter yet heartbreaking, aching character. I, I love him so much in this movie. And the beautiful thing is that in a lot of ways, Enid sees herself in Seymour. But what she realizes is that he is sad and she doesn't want to be like that. But it takes a long while and it takes her hurting his feelings in order for her to figure that one out. I do like how their characters mirror each other, but one has the chance to move beyond that but she needed to be faced with something that was an unfortunate circumstance that she created in order to actually make a change. And strangely, a, a character in this movie that annoys a lot of people, I really, really adore, and that's Ileana Douglas, is the uh, Roberta Owlsworth, the the art teacher, who does so much with so little screen time. Not a character that I identify with as like an art teacher I had in high school or in college, but I certainly get where they're coming from with her character and just the film that she shows to the class, the, the mirror father mirror film that she shows to her students and then says, this is, you know, a representation of what it's like to inhabit my particular skin is like (laughs) such, it's just like such a perfect way to introduce her character and how, um, just exhausted Enid is with, you know, her her presence of this teacher who's like trying to desperately grasp at her students for them to be like a little bit honest, to be introspective. All these things that you just don't want to talk about or do when you're 18 years old, you know, and someone's just like pushing you, pushing you, trying to make it happen. It's just like so boisterous and kind of full of themselves at the same time. And Ileana Douglas has always, you know, through the 90s, did these really beautiful, quirky characters. And one of my favorite performances of her is one of my pick of the week from, you know, episodes past, uh, Grace of My Heart. But here she really shines as the as the art teacher. She's not written as just a, a, a total farce, you know, and, and, and a caricature. I mean, she believes in Enid, the one person who looks at Enid's work and pushing her to, you know, you should go to art art college. You know, this is something you're talented as she recognizes her as something other than a kid or something other than like, you know, this bitter teenager, it, you know, tries to talk to her as an adult. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I, I think 
again, perfect casting on the part of uh, Ileana Douglas. And she recognizes Enid after Enid turns in an assignment that was something that she was just basically not even thinking about and further proving the fact that all of this is just crap is 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 the whole idea behind it. But what's funny is that that was her intention behind it, but her ill intention or just not caring about it actually proved to have some merit behind it, which I think is just like a, a weird little tiny tornado of going, oh, that's not the way I saw that going. And you also don't expect uh, Roberta to be behind Enid and say, this is a remarkable achievement. I'm very proud of you. That sort of thing. One thing I loved learning about this character of Roberta is that Klaus based it upon his uh, seventh grade, I think it was art teacher, his seventh grade teacher that was just really annoying. And so this was kind of a little bit of revenge or a little jab at that character. However, what Ileana Douglas brought to Roberta was so much Really, her input on crafting who this person was, she had this idea of it being like a a failed performance artist. And you see exactly that. If you've ever taken any type of art classes, you've thought that before. You've thought that about your teachers. It's not like she didn't know what she was talking about, but you see the pretentiousness in that awful film that she makes the class sit through. Mirror, father, mirror. Good God. But you see it, really. You see that she's broken and that she needs strangers to watch this crappy film that she made that she thinks is brilliant in order to understand her instead of just being who she is or being able to show the class that they need that buffer in order to get to know who she is in order for her to interact with the class, you know? Um one one quick thing we should we should move on, but her hair, which I think annoys a lot of people, that was also Ileana Douglas. I think she was originally written as a scraggly, frizzy-haired hippie, and Ileana showed up to set with that insane fire red orange crazy hair that's totally art teacher hair, and they just rolled with it and it worked. <laughs> I don't know how, but it totally worked for that character. There's a lot of little characters in this movie that sometimes seem over the top and kind of out there. It's balanced out by one particular character, uh, the character played by Brad Renfro, who plays Josh, because he's so uh, across the board normal. His normalcy (laughs) almost seems weird. Um, but I think that they had, I think that's the point. I think that, you know, you have all, you know, these crazy people that are coming into the convenience store that he works at and sort of the overtopness of Enid's dad and Enid's dad's girlfriend and Seymour's girlfriend. Josh kind of represents this sort of normalcy, not in the sense of what we consider normalcy in America or like normalcy in society, but just sort of like not being interested in anything. He's just a very muted character against all this sort of like character chaos. And Brad Renfo really brings that character to life kind of being so relaxed and so laid back and kind of like not telling off, you know, Enid and Rebecca are constantly bombarding him with questions and coming up to his work and annoying him. And instead of him saying like, what is your problem? You know, he ends up giving them a ride. Like he 
sort of caters to them and like does whatever they want, but you know, doesn't seem annoyed, but he doesn't really seem like he wants to be with them either, but he just doesn't seem like he has anything better to do. You know, he's just sort of there. And I, I love that about, about his character. And I, I think that's represented in the comic book, but Brad Renfo kind of br- brings that to life more in the movie. He's just kind of blah in the graphic novel to me anyway. And in the film, he's lovable. You feel bad for him. You're like, why are you doing this guy? You're, But, I mean, what else does he have going on for him? But I love Brad Renfro. What a lovable little dude. R.I.P. As Every time we brought up that guy, love them. And I think in, instinctually, you immediately want him to express some sort of feeling toward Enid or Rebecca. You know, it's like you kind of want it, and you kind of get the sense that they have feelings toward him that they're not expressing because they clearly have something going on. There's some sort of mutual appreciation happening. Otherwise, why would they want to walk all the way to his house or, like, you know, spend this kind of time, like, uh, look, you know, thinking, wondering where he is? We never really get that in the movie, but I still appreciate the fact that his presence is, is there, you know, in their lives. He's a lovable doormat. That's what he is. And you want him, you want better for him, but you know that they're just going to keep using him. One smaller part that should be mentioned is Bob Balaban, who plays Enid's dad, actor, producer, director. This guy, he's, he's perfect in every single Christopher Guest movie I've ever seen him in. Um, I love films that he's directed. There's just something that is perfect about everything that he does. It's like this idiosyncratic, particularity to every single character that he does and the dynamic between he and Enid and you can watch how the little things that he does even eating a sandwich and how Enid's annoyed at that how he is very clearly subservient to his daughter how he's kind of sheepish and just wants to avoid conflict with her he is just perfect in this role yeah every time I see the scene where he's eating the the English muffin with jam on it or the bagel. It's like a bagel or English muffin. This is one of the few times where I watch a movie where it's like, I worked with a guy like that who would like, we we would work in the morning and he would be having breakfast and coffee and he'd be making these. I apologize if this guy knows who he is and he's ever listens to this podcast, but like would kind of make these smacking sounds like, mm, you know, like commenting oh, on how delicious the food is. And then like would take a sip of his coffee and like, no. ah, no, no, really? Like, no. That's a good cup of coffee. And it's like, no, it's not. This coffee's terrible. You know, like, but just this sort of over-enjoying a meal that doesn't really, is not Disgusting. very good. Yeah, it was just very gross and, like, so early in the morning. Like, I remember after just, like, a several months of this, I was just like, I'm, I'm just going to stab you in the eye with a pencil. Right after I smacked that coffee out of your hand. God. I think it's a little over the top, his character, but I think it's 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 put there so so perfectly in the sense of like how kids can be annoyed with their parents and kind of be disgusted by them. It's just real the looks that she gives him when he's eating that that bagel. The body language that he and Enid have together, it really solidifies that father-daughter thing that's happening. And we also have the dynamic of not having a mom in this situation. We do have an ex-girlfriend that that pops up uh, for just a bit part, played by Terry Gar, who in an uncredited role, she was cast so late into the production. And I think it was just a hard role to cast because no one wanted it because it was so small. But her tiny little scene that she has, like, you see why Enid hates her. 
you know, just in the few lines that she has. If you were a teenage girl, you're like, yeah, I don't want that lady as my stepmom at all. Yeah, it is interesting how Enid's character sort of dominates all the men in this movie in her life. Yes, and totally. Then, and then the women in the movie are are like vying for Enid's attention as well. Like they're trying to be a part of her life in some way. I mean, it's it's, it's a very strange dynamic. Everybody's like trying to desperately like please you and you like just don't care about anybody. It's that dismissive teenage yeah. thing where you just are so self-absorbed that you just don't care. But people want you to act a certain way or to fit into a certain role. So they are going to try to get your attention to be how they want you to be, but you couldn't care less. <laughs> There's so many other bit players in this. Um, Debbie Azar, who plays Malora, I think she has two or three scenes who's the overly cheery. This place it's so funky. <laughs> She's so perfect with just the little bit scenes that she has. Debbie Azar, wonderful. Brian George, who plays the uh, boss at the Sidewinder, who is Brad Renfro's boss, who's just pissed off in every scene. Um, great. So much ad-libbing, I guess, went on with him, too. They just let scenes roll with he and Dave Sheridan, who plays Doug, who's the mullet, no-shirt, sunburn guy. Just so many times. Um, those two, I guess, just had some choice scenes together. Yeah, the, all the scenes at the convenience store in this movie just I just feel like I'm watching a completely different film. It's just they it's just like <laughs> they don't they stick just... out like crazy though. Really? You don't think so? No, not in this, but they do stick out as like a moment of total abandon and just total comedy. But I don't think it sticks out. If anything, the part that plays the best for me doesn't involve uh, Doug, it's when Enid brings Seymour in and is messing with Josh and introduces him to Seymour, who's the guy that they just stalked to his house, and Josh is shocked. And then Josh's boss <laughs> yells at him. I guess it's one of those repetitive jokes that happens in the film, like right. three or four times, but it doesn't stick out to me as, oh, here we are again. Maybe that's just because it's really funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I think the scenes are humorous, but it's just the only moments in the movie that seems like it cranked up to 11. And the rest of the humor in the movie is a little more subtle, so maybe that's why it just it sticks out so much to me. But I still laugh. I mean, that guy's hilarious with the nunchucks and stuff, even though it's just absolutely ridiculous that he's keeping nunchucks in his car and he's, like, attacking <laughs> people. But True enough. There's also the John Ellis character played by Pat Healy. And John Ellis was much more of a character in the Ghost World graphic novel as well. He's a little over the top. His weird, racist, anti-Semitic craft that he says to Enid, I feel like it's the same caliber as the Sidewinder humor. But in the spirit of Ghost World as a graphic novel, there are so many characters that are thrown in that are more exaggerated than, say, Enid and Rebecca. It fits. You know, this movie's a quirky movie, but it doesn't feel like they're just like, hey, what's the weirdest person we can throw in this scene just so we got some weird people in the background? Like, it feels like it fits within this world that has been created around them. You look real carefully in just the background of one scene. There's a pregnant woman smoking, too. You know, no attention is paid to her other than she's walking through the background. There's a lot of attention to detail that I think that they were wanting you to pay attention to everything, not just the immediacy of that dialogue happening in front of you. 
and speaking earlier, we talking about, you know, the the translation of a comic book to a movie. This film, you know, doesn't scream like comic book look as far as like what we had seen in the 90s of like comic book movies that were oversaturated in color and were lit with like multi different, you know, reds and blues and sort of like otherworldly, but really artificial at the same time. This one has a more muted look to it that does capture the style of the the comic book. I mean, the comic book is not necessarily in color. It's more like blacks and blues, like a tealish color. Um, and they don't do that in the movie, thankfully. But just the look and style of Enid and how she dresses, you know, like later on dyes her hair green, but then uh, Rebecca's wearing like a green skirt. There's just a sort of complementing colors and matching that goes on that does give it a... a, a a more vibrant look to it and is interesting to the eye and the compositions of like keeping the camera static, but having two people framed and talking and having the, the actors move in the, in the shot in the scene versus moving the camera all the time. Yeah. And one thing with the colorful world that is depicted in ghost world, it feels like it's supposed to be, you know, very modern and has this cheery appeal, but we see that underneath that there's an underbelly, not necessarily like a, you know, what we think of as like a criminal underbelly, but like a, a, a dark, uglier side of humanity. To me, that's what this is saying. And along with the aspect of it being derived from a comic book, but all of this is really due to production designer Ed McAvoy and Mary Zoffries, who did costume design. I just really think that along with Klaus and... Uh, Zweigoff, that the overall feel of Ghost World was so understood and what was trying to be achieved. You know, one thing, though, now that I'm thinking about it, the ending, Justin, that's one thing that seems to be ambiguous and was very intentional. And for a lot of people, it has different meanings. Justin, what did you think of the ending of Ghost World? I've always taken the ending as the end of Enid and Rebecca's relationship as friends. Okay. You know, they're supposed to move in together and Enid was about, you know, had already moved some of her stuff in. But when they, the last time they talk, you hear Rebecca say, well, call me. But it kind of sounds like they're not going to see each other again. And whenever Enid, she sees the Norman character, this guy, this old guy that they've been hanging out, this bus stop that's been closed down, you know, she sees him leave on the bus and then she gets on a bus by herself. And it's sort of this ominous bus driving into the, the distance to end the movie. I've always taken as that's Enid going her own separate way, like a metaphor of like, you know, Rebecca was going to go her way. She's getting a job. She's growing up. Enid's not ready to let go of her childhood yet. Mm-hmm. So she's on her own path. Researching this movie for the episode, I've stumbled on so many people who got out of the ending that Enid had committed suicide and that that was her like going off to heaven, I guess. Like, you know, never meeting. got that. And, you know, I just never got that impression. Not to say that people who are, you know, you don't always see it with people who are suicidal. It doesn't seem far-fetched to me, and, and certainly it's an ambiguous ending, like you said. So, I mean, it's up for interpretation, but I certainly never got that out of it. But I can see how someone could make a case for that. Well, I never really got the suicide angle of the ending of this film. If anything, for me, it was just Enid following the predictable path of having no other motivation besides what is her immediate future. You know, does does she grow? 
she does grow in this film. She goes through something, but what she wants to do or find out about herself is not going to ever follow a normal path. And she is an artist. A lot of times that doesn't follow a normal path for a lot of artists. It's not a traditional ending, but I don't know. It's not sad. It's not happy. I like it being just kind of a mystery. And no matter what you think of it, I think it's open for interpretation. I like to think that she and Rebecca see each other 10, 15 years later, and maybe they're in different spots in life and can reconnect like no day has passed. Probably with these characters, that's what it would be. But I think Enid was just not meant to follow the same path that Rebecca was. And I that's that's what the ending says to me by getting on the bus to nowhere. And normally I, I, I'm not a fan of the ambiguous like metaphorical ending and when I think about it I, I'm trying to think back when I first saw this movie and I probably if I can remember correctly like I, I don't think that I was like the biggest fan of the ending I didn't hate it by any means um but watching this movie now like and especially watching it several times in the last couple weeks I, I really think it's like a beautiful ending, you know, and it's, it's very sad, you know, it's a melancholy mm-hmm. kind of ending. And especially with the, with the music, it just, it gives you a sense of, of, of loneliness, you know, all, all the characters who were a part of this universe that we've been watching for a couple hours have all gone their separate ways. That's a part of life. I think it's a really great ending, you know, for this type of movie and, and for these type of characters. For a movie that's based off of a comic book, a graphic novel, it had a very real ending to me. Even if people don't disappear on buses all too often nowadays, I think something like that is completely possible. Yeah. Now, when this film was uh, initially tested, it did not test well with audiences. And the studio was very leery of even putting it out because it just kept not doing well. And even when... They held a executive screening for just the studio executives. There was one person in the audience who laughed, laughed like like hysterical to the point that the other executives thought it was a plant that they paid somebody to be there. Otherwise, it did not go over well. And it actually took one more final screening that the studio executives had and said, we're going to do one more and we're going to prove to you that no one wants to see your movie. Here it is. And they held this last screening in Culver city and completely backfired. The film tested through the roof. Everyone that went to see it loved it. And the studio begrudgingly pushed forward with the release of the film, but didn't really give it a full rollout like what would normally happen for a film it premiered at the seattle international film festival but didn't really test well with audiences there however critics really appreciated it and i think that that's been the biggest uh, supporter of this film have been critics that watch this movie and has been pretty overwhelming across the board critics really do like this movie and i think it, it might have been terry's wygoff that said You know, a lot of critics were the outsiders. The kids were beaten up in school. So kind of makes sense that uh, it would be the critics that would be like, no, this movie's awesome, actually. Yeah, like so many movies that we've talked about on this podcast, a movie that critically had some acclaim, but sadly just didn't connect with audiences at the box office and no one really seemed to take notice of it. 
And it was a pretty small release. I mean, it was a studio film, but it wasn't like a gigantic release. So at least it made its money back, you know, and then eventually connected with audiences, you know, over the last 20 years. And that's not to say that it wasn't recognized. It was certainly nominated. I mean, it got an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay and faced a lot of other nominations for the actors involved and was nominated and won a myriad of awards at different festivals and just like Critics' Choice panels uh, for either acting or the adapted screenplay. This movie was recognized. I just think that, one, it didn't get the rollout that it deserved, and it's just kind of a hard sell because it's not uh, it's not your typical movie. It's a tough sell, but it's like all these movies that have become cult classics. They're they just were hard to market. There's no nothing to reference. You know, it's just like it's this new, unique thing that you've never seen, and it's like how do you market that? You know, other than you've never seen anything like this before. You know? <laughs> I think Dark Man's the only movie that successfully used not knowing what the movie was about as its marketing campaign and was successful. Justin, do you think that Ghost World will ever become a cult film that is discovered by another generation? I know it's so hard to say. It, it is only 20 years old. Well, now now is the time. Now is the time. If you were born when this movie came out, you'd be about the age that Enid and uh, Rebecca are. So I'm curious. Uh, you know, 20 years is about a good time to kind of see where a movie's at. I do know that this isn't a movie that I ever really see pop up on lists of like best cult movies or I, and it's not really one that I honestly hear very many people talk about. I actually asked one of my coworkers the other day and I mean he watches quite a few movies and he had like never heard of Ghost World. So I, I don't know, like I, I it's not one, at least for me personally, that I ever hear people talk about. I know you have a different feelings about it yeah. and a lot of people you know this was yeah. a movie that was a big part of or, of their friends and you know quoted it and stuff like that I was the nerd I was the the kid in journalism school but I hung out with the photography kids the video the film all of those guys and you can say tampon in a teacup to any one of those or even hell not even to do with art I mean if you love blues you should really check out blues hammer being someone in a band I used to have a bandmate that said <laughs> that phrase quite often. But to me, this movie had much more of a cultural impact than I think it had on, you know, society at large. And maybe that just has to do with the specific niche demographic that that is, you know, the demographic that is later depicted in Zweigoff's film Art School Confidential. Well, I'll be curious if this is a episode that people talk to us on social media about and say oh yeah i love this movie or if it's just sort of one of those episodes that silently uh exists without getting listened to no i do i do find it very hard to believe that with scarlett johansson's like intergalactic popularity that people haven't rediscovered this movie you know that haven't seen it before not to say like thor birch and brad renfro Ileana douglas and Steve Buscemi, all giant actors. Like, they've been around forever, aside from Brad Renfro. But Scarlett Johansson, I mean, hell, a comic book movie queen now, right? Yeah. Usually takes 20 years for a movie to hit that next generation, so we'll, 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 we'll find there. out very soon. We're there. We're there. We're on the cusp of it. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll come back for some final thoughts on Ghost World, but uh, let's get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, tell me about your movie, Parting Glances. 
It's gay, Justin. It's gay. Oh, you had to pick a gay movie again, huh? <laughs> there were so many avenues for a pick this week, but after I stumbled across this movie, I knew that I'd found gold. It co-stars Ghost World's Steve Buscemi in not his first film role, but the first one which amped up his Hollywood visibility that got him noticed. Parting Glances takes place in a 24-hour time span in the heart of New York in the mid-80s. We follow Michael, played by Richard Ganung, and the immediacy of his two significant relationships, one with his partner, Robert, played by John Bulger, and their changing relationship as Robert's job has him shipping off to Africa for two years. Michael's second relationship is with his ex-boyfriend, Nick, played by Steve Buscemi. The two are best friends, care deeply for each other, and probably have a deeper connection than Michael and Robert do. The biggest part of the film and what the movie's leading up to is Robert's going away party, hosted by their bestie, Joan, played by Kathy Kinney, who's responsible for that unforgettable role of Mimi in the Drew Carey show, if you all remember that. The going away party itself is filled to the brim with normies, arty folk, the gayest of the gay, eccentrics, and yuppie Manhattanites. And while this is a very queer film, one of the most noticeable aspects, especially for when this movie came out in 86, is how it completely normalizes queerness. I know that sounds weird, maybe by today's standards, but like we always say on this podcast, consider the time period. Queer films were primarily about being a victim or villain. Some type of pain or anguish must exist with this misunderstood-by-society lifestyle or persecution with barely any resolution. Next to that, why this film is important to queer cinema is how it was one of the first to freshly and brilliantly bring up the topic of HIV, specifically the narrative revolving around Buscemi's character Nick. This topic was barely explored at the time, often using sexless-seeming gay men with a story directed at a straight audience, you know, so no one feels alienated. But not with this film. Also at this time, AIDS had been pushed in the background, even though this was a massive epidemic that was only in the beginning stages of being researched. It had been labeled the gay cancer, even though it affected heterosexual men and women as well as children. So when Parting Glances came out in 86, one might expect the story to focus on harsher realities, especially since it was dealing with a disease that was at the height of misinformation. But instead, this film is a direct result of being tired of misrepresentations. Parting Glances is universal, matter of fact. It's not afraid of discussing and even using humor to disarm, even when it may seem inappropriate. By showing the complexity of relationships, romantic and otherwise, within and around the LGBT community, Parting Glances was so bold. Life's natural style of conversational, sharp, quick-witted humor is worked all throughout the story, a fact which sets it apart from typical stories involving difficult relationship evolutions and certainly any type of illness. There are a few moments of realness regarding HIV, and even then, humor is used in the most serviceable, human-like, relatable, to true-to-life ways. There's a lot of heart in these character interactions, even frank dialogue regarding sexual liberation and the common existence of being someone's beard and cheating. Like I said, this is a conversational film. You've got to stay on the move with the story. And writer-director Bill Sherwood does just that. From the way it's staged to how one scene flows flawlessly into another, such developed complexity involved in all respects. But make no mistake, this is most certainly a drama about old loves, evolving relationships, changing stereotypes, and just leading your life. This isn't even a coming out story or a single issue AIDS film. It's just about life. And while this film was the launching pad for Buscemi and Kinney, for an independent film of faces not all that cinematically familiar 35 years later, 
I'm bowled over by the competency and confidence of all the actors. There are a number of indie movies that I hold close to my heart, and some of them don't have the best acting at all times. But you look past it because of XYZ reason. The story's great, it's innovative, fresh, whatever the reason. But Parting Glances has three lead roles, and the supporting characters feel just as engaging as those with more scenes. There are some background characters which could have films just based off one scene alone. Just incredibly layered performances all around. I love character studies and lengthy interactions in movies. I mean, it's real life, just with the boring parts of conversation weeded out. Most obviously, this is a very personal story. I can't say for sure, but Bill Sherwood must have held the character of Michael close to his heart. This was Sherwood's only full-length film, though he had done a few short films before completing Parting Glances. He died in 1990 of AIDS-related complications and never really got to see the massive amounts of love this film has gotten over the years. It was praised at the time, but nowadays, the film is celebrated as one of the most amazing pieces of queer cinema. It completely throws out expected tropes of LGBT films of the time. Even by today's standards, it feels on par, even maybe ahead in some ways, of where movies are today about LGBT characters and stories. In 2007, the film was even restored and given a proper screening at Outfest, of which many of the stars, including Kenny and Buscemi, attended. And I read somewhere that Parting Glances is sometimes referred to as the godfather of gay cinema, and that feels very appropriate. I can't believe this movie escaped me for so long, but I am so in love with it now. Oh, and one more thing. There are at least three, if I remember correctly, Bronski Beat songs in the movie. So if you're a fan of that band like I am, that's a pretty fun surprise. So like Justin said already, Parting Glances is currently streaming on Tubi. Please give it a watch while you can. I'm excited to check this out. I really like the sort of like 80s art movies that came out in New York, like around that time, the indie art films. There's something I'm really in love with, too, about that era. It's this um, idealized version of, of what it was. I, I don't know. I, I was a child then. But seeing those movies made me feel like New York was the place to go. That was that was where I wanted to be or destined to be, where you could make a new life to be whatever you wanted, you know? Yeah, it was like the pre-studios uh, costing $3,000 a month <laughs> era of New York City, living and being an artist. Yep, exactly, where anything was possible. Can't afford to do that anymore, yeah. <laughs> nope, not at all. All right, your turn. Tell me about your pick of the week, Justin. Well, my pick of the week is also about an artist who uh, never went to New York City. He stayed in Cleveland, Ohio the entirety of his career and also never stopped working his full-time job as a clerk at a VA hospital. The movie I chose was American Splendor. It's about the life and times of comic book writer Harvey Picard. He uh, did a comic series called American Splendor, which was basically a comic book uh, about his normal life of working his job and, and living in the city and, and not having a lot of money and kind of dealing with the uh, everyday strife of like living in poverty and kind of dealing with annoying people and like having everything kind of be just a little bit difficult because you don't have the extra money or means to make your life easier. You know, also dealing with depression. And he also had a couple issues, like he had an issue with his throat. So he always had to like constantly clear it and his throat was always in pain. But uh, he had this idea to do um, this comic book uh, called American Splendor, which again, like I said, focused on the minutia of his life. He wasn't an illustrator, though. He couldn't draw a picture to save his life. But he had developed a friendship with Robert Crumb, who we talked a little bit about on this podcast. 
Robert Crumb really liked his ideas and started illustrating the comics for him. So Harvey would write the stories and the ideas and the main character in American Splendor was played by Harvey Picar. The movie mainly focuses on the mid-70s and late-80s through that time period in Harvey's life where he divorced his first wife and then had a a second long-term relationship with a woman, and she was a fan of his artwork, and then they they developed a relationship. She also was an artist herself. Um, She's played by Hope Davis in the film. The majority of the movie is the ups and downs of their relationship and in that push and pull of a lot of times people who are focused so much on their art, you know, they can be very narcissistic and he's a very grouchy person. So there's a lot of dark humor in the movie. At least I thought it was funny. I think it's meant to be humorous. The big plus with this movie for me is I've never seen a film that was presented in this way. I think it's really, really original in that they have the real Harvey Picard narrating the movie And he's kind of saying, you know, this is a movie about me. This actor is playing me. He doesn't even look like me. So he's commenting on what you're seeing. So it's very meta. But then in the middle of the movie, we actually see the real Harvey Picar on a soundstage being recorded, like the recording is audio that he was going to talk his narration through the whole movie. But then we see Paul Giamatti, who plays Harvey Picar in the movie, Um, We see uh, some other actors who we've seen in the movie all merge together and they're all kind of like hanging out in the background. So the film world and the real world merge together and they kind of play on that through the rest of the movie. And they also um, use some animation like illustration that's much like it is in the comic books is the backdrops for some of the setting in in certain scenes it's a very bold move but it but because of the way his life is and the style and the comics that he made it actually fits really well i think it's very clever and it's very inventive Uh, again um this is the only film i can think of that does something like this and at first it's a little bit jarring but uh on another rewatch i was like man this really blows me away the the style in which they chose to present this tale It's also uh, kind of an interesting story because he is kind of, you know, there's a lot of talk about being an artist and being successful as an artist. You know, those same things run through Ghost World as well. And Harvey Picar never quit his job. He he, he retired. He worked 35 years or so, uh, retired with a pension from the, the VA. And uh, even though he had great popularity and he was making money from his comics, he always just felt like, you know, he de- he never wanted to not have stability. And he also felt like if he left his job and sort of chased after fame by going to New York or moving away to L.A. or following like some other people like Robert Crumb did, he would lose his edge. You know, he would lose what made his comics so real. You know, he he never wanted to write about a life that he wasn't living himself, which I think is a really interesting way to go about art. You know, it makes me think about a lot of movies and a lot of music and books where, you know, they always talk about when they were younger, they did their best work. And a lot of times the focus is on someone saying, well, they did their best work when they were young and then their stuff got more derivative as they got older. And it's always blamed on an artist aging. But this movie makes a case for the fact that it's it's the artist 
becoming comfortable and gaining money and popularity. And that's what softens their their edge as being an artist and having a voice. Um, and that voice will stay fresh if as long as they're living the life that they're they're speaking the truth about how they're living. That was my takeaway from the movie. Um, I highly recommend this movie. I think it's one of the best films that's come out in the last 20 years. If you're a fan of Paul Giamatti, I think this is one of his best roles. I think all his little idiosyncratic things that he's harnessed over the years um, just fit so perfectly. His character is a character that is kind of grating, but at the same way, so lovable in uh, very, very similar to the Seymour Steve Buscemi character in Ghost World. I, th- I would love to see a movie where these two are like hanging out, at, you know, looking at records and stuff like that. So American Splendor, uh, check it out if you haven't seen it. This is probably my favorite movie with Paul Giamatti in it. There's just so many little things um, about this odd film that uh, he he really illuminates. And um, it's just a... Not your typical film that you would see. It's it's really wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this one. Yeah, it was a, it was this was a fun watch. So those are our picks of the week: uh, American Splendor and Parting Glances. Uh, let's keep moving on. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Sometimes these Murray moments revolve around something that's not pointedly about Billy, but rather what he was involved with in the beginning of his career. So once again, let's travel back to Billy's days with Saturday Night Live. Comic book and SNL lovers out there, who knows about the time the cast of SNL made a one-time-only appearance in a Marvel team-up series Spider-Man comic back in 1978? Anybody? As so many stories involving Billy begin, you might wonder, how in the world did SNL get mishmashed together with Marvel Comics? At the time, SNL was certainly known. It was kind of cool, underground, subversive. No one else was doing that sort of thing, but the cast weren't entirely megastars at that point. So as it goes, Chris Claremont, novelist and Marvel writer since the 70s, best known for co-creating many X-Men characters, was brainstorming with Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. The two were discussing who would be the best next guest star in the team-up series, who would totally surprise readers and make them have to buy the issue. Seemingly out of the blue and being a fan of the show, Claremont says to Shooter, what about the not-ready-for-primetime players? And remember, at this time, that's what the cast was called, the not-ready-for-primetime players. Shooter blankly looks at him and says something like, hmm, they're real world, we're comic books. Go call them up. So Chris does just that. It's crazy to think about a time when you could just call up Lauren Michaels' office and speak to a receptionist who'd immediately get word to Michaels. I just can't imagine that nowadays. You've heard of Spider-Man. Claremont asked the person who answers in Michaels' office. Well, we do a team-up series, and we were wondering if Lauren would be interested in guest-starring the Not Ready for Primetime players. There's total silence on the other end for a few beats, and then the person says, Who is this again? Claremont reiterated his brief pitch, and the person answered, we'll have to get back to you, then hung up. 
A little dejected, he returns to the pitch meeting with Shooter. Uh, it didn't go well. They didn't sound interested. But then, like five minutes later, Shooter's phone rings. It's the Marvel front desk, forwarding a call from Lauren Michaels' office, asking if they really just called to pitch this idea. Shooter restates what Claremont said, and again, a long silence. But then six weeks later, they were sent a contract by NBC. But there were a few caveats to Spider-Man teaming up with the not-ready-for-primetime players. One, this was a one-time issue. Two, no extensions. These were the current cast members who agreed to share their image, and Michaels didn't want them hounded years later for a re-release. And three, there would be no publicity. And so, the Marvel team-up issue number 74, featuring Spider-Man and the not-ready-for-primetime players, was released. From the mind of Chris Claremont, backed by artists Bob Hall, Mary Severin, and Annette Kowecki, bringing the story to life through visuals. And the plot unfolds like this. Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, and MJ Watson are out on a date, post-dinner, and heading to catch a live taping of SNL. With his spidey senses starting to go off, Peter eventually gives in, leaving his date to watch the show by herself. Good thing, though, because as it turns out, SNL cast member John Belushi was sent a ring, presumably by a fan, which he puts on his finger and then is unable to remove. But the ring truly belongs to the Silver Samurai, who's employed his gang of goons to recover the ring at any cost. There are quite a few vignettes of the cast members setting traps and battling the Silver Samurai's no-good minions. And though those scenes are evenly spread, I think Billy has the lengthiest bits and some of the greatest action. Sure, Belushi gets to fight the Silver Samurai while dressed as his SNL samurai character, but it's Billy who secretly finds out the plan to steal the ring, knocks out a bad guy, and then poses in the bad guy's clothes to learn about the no-good plans, and then reports back to Spider-Man. It's pretty dang cool. Unfortunately, I wasn't ever able to find... Billy talking about his feelings about being turned into a comic book hero, but Claremont has mentioned how unbelievably stoked Belushi was to be included in the Marvel Universe. Claremont and Shooter even got invited to the post-party for Animal House when it was released, and it was rumored that Belushi had this legendary team-up issue framed in his house. Treating the not-ready-for-primetime players as comic book heroes has to go down in history as one of the coolest, most brilliantly random crossovers ever. And... SNL did it for free. Any proceeds from issue number 74 went to charity. Any exposure for Marvel or SNL, that'd be fantastic. Hopefully SNL's fan base would expand, but ultimately they retained their uber-hip underground subculture vibe, and Marvel got an issue that stands out in the best kind of way. Claremont has said this experience was for the pure enjoyment of it, Marvel and the SNL cast members. He said... Our point was, you got to really read this book. You never know who's going to show up. He's also advised people to pick up the issue if you ever see it for sale, because like I said before, this was a one-time deal. It'll never be reprinted. You can definitely find copies out there. I am certainly glad I now own one. And I think I might just frame it too, because it is pretty cool. Now, this is not Billy's lone entry into the Marvel Universe, but that'll be for another Murray moment. And since this episode centered around the ghost world, it seemed all too appropriate. That's pretty wild uh, to think of them doing some Marvel stuff way back when. <laughs> it's just so uh, relevant and huge in, in pop culture now. But back then, I wonder if very many people like really knew what the heck that they were uh, commenting on. I mean, just like so nuts to think about the, the time period and, you know, 40 years later, it being a completely different ball game for both SNL and Marvel. 
It's pretty, it's just pretty wild. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Yeah, of course. I know we had just a, like sort of a final thought on Ghost World before we wrap things up. Yeah, I think we wanted to hit on one of the coolest ways to open a movie and bold too is to open a film with scenes from another movie. And the opening of this film starts out with a musical number from the 60s Hindi movie um, with the surf psychedelic song um, from the film Gunam. This song has just been stuck in my head for like two straight weeks. I think it's a really great way to open the movie because, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing almost no one had heard this song. Um, yeah. So it, it it's intriguing, and then it also really, I think, is a great way to bring you into the world of, of Enid because why her character is fascinating is because she, you know, challenges herself and searches out these sort of like, you know, non-mainstream music and, and movies. I love the whole sequence. I love that they incorporate it, and I love that the song bookends the movie. And it was kind of crazy how it even came about because – Dan Klaus had just a snippet from this movie on a compilation tape that he used to regularly show people, you know, friends like this is stuff you have to see. And he showed it to Terry Zweigoff, who really loved it and thought we should use this in the movie. Dan Klaus thought, you know, that's weird. That's crazy. Why, why would we do that? But they ended up having to really do some investigation and track down what the name of this movie was who put it out, like just where it came from in order to see if they could get the rights to use it in the beginning of the film. And as it turns out, the creators behind it, I don't think that the original creators were still alive, but their sons were, I think, of the producers. And they were absolutely thrilled that someone wanted to use it. I think it's just really cool that something like that kind of got a second life, you know? I mean, there's no getting around it. That song is catchy as hell. And it's, I mean, it it clearly, <laughs> yeah. you know, the first thing that pops in my mind is Tarantino, but this is the kind of thing that Tarantino sure. pulled from. Sure. He was like an Enid when he was younger and would be drawn to <laughs> something out of the ordinary, but see how interesting and, and hip something like that is. The musical choices just all around for this film, whether it is from Gunam opening and closing the film or Seymour's musical stylings that we see, blues hammer, even the score of the film is used so sparingly. And when it is used, it has so much more of an impact. And that's something that you might not notice the first time through. I think a a score that has a epic or, you know, something that is really trying to make you feel something is much more noticeable. But this one I think you notice it like the third time through that it's manipulating your feelings without you really even knowing it. We've talked uh, in several episodes about uh, studio interference with soundtracks, and I'm glad that this was uh, another soundtrack that didn't get uh, fussed with by studio just so they could make money on it. Yeah, thank goodness. This movie could have had a whole other trajectory if different musical choices had been used, which is nutty to think about. Like every late 90s teen movie, when you watch it now, it's just like, <laughs> exactly. uh, got you where I want you, whatever hit song was in the 90s at that time on the radio. You picked Disturbing Behavior to bring up. Okay. See, I immediately, see. I just have to say that song and you know what it is. Cause... 
Yes, I do. Like when I rewatch uh, teen movies from the late '90s, I'm I'm like, oh yeah, I, these were all hit songs. Like I, it brings me back because mm-hmm. it's the only time I hear them because you don't hear them too often anymore. But I think it was the last like death rattle of songs from a movie that were pop songs. Not that I mean, there are certainly like best songs still exist yeah. in you know the Oscars category, but it was way different. Then in the late '90s and early 2000s, it was it was to get the the younger audience, the pop, the pop song, the yeah, hit, the hit yeah. number. When I think a movie like this, especially dealing with you know Enid, who's an artist, I mean the music just has to be diegetic and be a part of the character and part of the universe, not this outside soundtrack that is unconnected to the movie. Which a lot of movies have that. You know, it's like a, a movie starts and over the credits they need to put a song on there and they're like well hey this is a you know this is a hit song let's slap it on the credits but a movie like this I I think like the music needs to be um, connected and represent a character and and be uh, closer to uh, their their world and this movie does a fantastic job of that I think it's interesting the movie that that's coming up next because uh you know, we, we identified with Seymour so much in Ghost World, and uh, I feel like another character that I identify with a little bit too much that, that worries me is uh, the character of Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. So <laughs> we'll, be, uh, we'll be tackling another Scorsese classic coming up on the next episode. So uh, if you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. Um, there you'll find out about... Uh, you know, what's coming up on uh, further episodes, uh, other ramblings from us. You can find all of our past episodes on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Lindsay's uh, painstakingly organized everything there. We also have a store there that has tons of merch, all kinds of items. Everything that you buy from our store uh, does help us put money back into the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much. In the last uh, two or three months, we've had quite a few purchases of items. We want to thank you all for for doing that. Uh, We really appreciate it. It really helps us out a lot. Yes, for real. Thank you, guys. So until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time, guys. Jan pehchan ho Jina aasan ho Jan pehchan ho Jina aasan ho Dil ko churane walo Aankh na churao Naam to batao Jan pehchan ho Jina aasan ho Jan pehchan ho आसान हो दिल को चुराने वालों आंख न चुराओ नाम तो बताओ जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो